0: I'm Autumn Lockett,
1: and this is Mitch Randall,
0: and you're listening to Good Faith Weekly.
1: Welcome to this week's episode of Good Faith Weekly, and on this episode, Autumn and I are going to catch up, talk a little bit about the marathon signing of executive orders from President Joe Biden, and then also we're going to talk about how the pandemic has changed our faith and the way we do church. And then in our interview this week, we're very fortunate to have Dr. Amanda Novak with us. Who is an immunologist from Little Rock, Arkansas? And she, at the first of the year, called for a national stay at home order. So stay tuned. Autumn, how are you this week?
0: I'm doing great. I am watching the vaccine continue to roll out. I'm watching some positive news out of D.C., which is just a breath of fresh air.
1: Yeah, it's exciting to see. You know, it was a little disturbing, obviously, uh, when uh, the Biden administration took over from the Trump administration, and we found out that there really was no national plan to combat COVID or to roll out the vaccines, it was uh, kind of left up from to state to state, and depending on what state you lived in, how well that was conducted. Um, but now it feels like, you know, everybody's at least trying to get on the same page, and that they're, we have, we're not there yet, but there is a plan that is being put into place, and the vaccine is getting into people's arms, um, you know, slowly, hopefully faster in the future, but yeah, there's hope on the horizon. Do you know anybody who has had the vaccine yet?
0: Um, we have some neighbors. Our, our neighborhood is quite a bit older <laughs> for mm-hmm. the most part. So I just only really know some neighbors and then some folks in like the healthcare. Yeah.
1: How have they reacted to it? Because what I've heard is that, you know, there's, there's been different reactions to it. Uh, some people have, uh, you know, obviously a little pain in the arm, but, you know, flu, fluish like symptoms for about 24 hours and then it goes away. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but yeah, uh, yeah.
0: Uh, that's sort of what I heard. Our daughter's actually going to do a trial um, uh, when she's. 14, And uh, she's going to participate in the Moderna juvenile trial. So she goes on uh, Monday, February 1st. And we don't know if she'll have the placebo or the actual vaccine, but she's really excited about it. It's a 13-month study. And, you know, of course, we hope that she really does get the vaccine. But either way, she feels like she's, you know, a part of the science and the technology of this, which is exciting.
1: Oh, that's, that's wonderful. That's so cool to hear. So awesome. Good for her. Well, this week in Washington, D.C., as you mentioned, uh, there is a little light uh, shining out of uh, our nation's capital over the last uh, week or so, and President Biden has gone on this signing tear of executive (laughs) orders, uh, repealing a lot of what the Trump administration put into place over their four years. But there's one uh, executive order that I thought was more paramount than any other, and that was getting the United States back into the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, over Which the is la- not
0: just for Parisians, by no. the way. <laughs> Turns out. Really? The Paris Climate Agreement, not just for Parisians anymore. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Ted Cruz. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, you know, over the last three years, people, uh, as you know, when we were operating as Ethics Daily, and, and of course now is Good Faith Media, in interacting with uh, congregations and leaders and pastors and lay people, they would always ask me, you know, what is the number one issue that you think Christians should be uh, not only concerned about, but actively engaged in at this time? And I said, it's by far, I think, uh, climate change. Because the reality is climate change affects everything. Uh, It affects all the other issues that we're dealing with. Uh, When famine um, and drought uh, arise across the globe, then immigration uh, begins to, or human migration begins to take shape. At the same time, you know, we only have a limited amount of resources. I mean, we only have one planet, believe it or not, and there's only so many fossil fuels underneath the earth. And when you begin to rape and pillage the earth like we've done over the last several decades with really out any thought being put into how do we preserve this or, for or discovering sustainable uh, fuels, then the earth as a living organization, because as Christians and as believers, we simply believe that God created all of this. And if he created it, then it is a living entity. So this rock we live on is a living entity entity and organism and when you attack an organism what does nature tell us it it, it does and that is that it fights back. back exactly so I, i'm glad to hear that we're back in the paris climate agreement that you know we're going to be taking a lead once again in combating climate change because we are losing at this point and yeah. we've only got one mm-hmm. globe and i cannot I cannot look my children in the face anymore without feeling like we haven't done our part in addressing this issue, because I guarantee they are concerned about it.
0: Well, they are. And, you know, the situation about climate change also is that it it impacts vulnerable populations the most. Um, and that continues to be true. So it's not just about the future. Like it's impacting those communities now, um, all around the globe. I read a study recently that was comparing, um, the temperatures of neighborhoods, um, and looked at neighborhoods that were Mm redlined, um, because of, uh, you know, just racist housing practices. Mm -hmm. And those neighborhoods are on average five to 12 degrees hotter. Wow. than the other neighborhoods that so has to do with planting of trees and more concrete and all of those things. But I mean, that's a very small piece of it, but it continues to impact people that are in a more vulnerable state. And so as Christians, we have to care about that. Jesus said we do.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and as, as we continue to look at and as, as the, popu- the global population continues to increase, I was watching a BBC report the other day, and a BBC reporter actually went back to Hunan uh, where uh, COVID-19 uh, is orig- allegedly and or originally began. And they were talking about how this began, this, this uh, transmission of, between a bat and, and a human uh, source, and one of the things that was fascinating to me is that he went down to the local markets and looked at the food sources that people were uh, buying and you went to the local market. Obviously they certainly have different cuisines and taste than uh, we do in the West. And, you know, one of the items that were for sale were bats and snails and things that were harvested from the bush and uh, he was asking how the meat was prepared, uh, when it was you know, when it was harvested, uh, who was in charge of cooking the meat. And in some instances, uh, the meat was not uh, prepared. It was shipped to other locations unprepared. So then again, who's preparing that? And it was really fascinating, just really on a micro level uh, to see the possibilities of humans beginning to be introduced to different species with deforestation taking place within Mm -hmm. some of these more remote locations. And I've seen that with my own eyes when I visited West Africa, especially in some of the most abject poverty situations, such as I encountered in Northern Ghana. You go up to Northern Ghana and you leave the, the safety in the city of Tamale and go out in the bush and you find these little food stands, and I'll never forget seeing uh, what they were offering uh, for consumption. And one was a a charcoaled bat, and then the other one was this enormous snail uh, that you were supposed to cook and and eat. And it was just like, you know, you were not going to find that in the city per se, but you find it more out in the bush. But what's happening is that there are, people who are coming in who are wanting these exotic dishes and to try these exotic dishes and, and they do so. And then maybe they're, you know, they're exposed to something that their immune system is not ready for. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, you know, you get a virus and it begins yeah. to spread. I'm always reminded about that from my own ancestry uh, when, you know, natives people here in the Americas lived here for you know, thousands of years, and then all of a sudden, you had these Europeans show up with all these diseases, such as smallpox, that ravished the natives people. And so, you know, this, there's something to that. So, to me, if we uh, if we combat climate change, if we take aggressive actions towards it, and, and try to find more sustainable f- sources of fuel, and educate people everywhere around the world, then maybe, just maybe, that. Some of the diseases that we're facing, like COVID nineteen, could be eliminated even before they uh, the people the people are exposed to it.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, speaking of COVID nineteen, uh, my article this week at uh, GoodFaithMedia dot org was about how this pandemic has reshaped my faith, and you know I didn't really think that my faith was undergoing this. Uh, reshaping over the last year, but when I began to think about it, um, I just—it's natural. It's natural to to go through something that we have gone through as a society and as individuals, and on the other side of it, the outcome is we have all been affected by it. And so I started thinking about, okay, I, I know tangibly how my life has changed uh, to some extent, but how has my faith? been reshaped by this global experience. So I talk about several elements of my faith that has uh, really, really been reshapen, if that's a word, uh, during this pandemic. Uh, And one of those is just the sense of community. I always knew community was important. I was always an advocate for community, but I did not realize the deep need that I had for community. And not just, and community, and Zoom can only go so far. <laughs> <laughs> you know, outdoor worship can only go so far. And they've been great, don't get me wrong. But there's something about sitting across the table with some friends or family and, and sharing a cup of coffee or a meal and having authentic and genuine conversations that I deeply miss, or even the in-person worship uh, experience with my you know, fellow sojourners in faith. Uh, that sense of relational community is really missed, and I miss mm-hmm. it greatly.
0: Yeah, you didn't realize how much you took it for granted. You mm-hmm. know, I feel like personally, like we've done a pretty good job of keeping in contact with folks who are in our circle, you know, on the phone, text, Zoom, sure. that kind of thing. Um, but it's the, you know, passing of, you know, you know uh, the elderly ladies Sunday school class right. and stopping in because, you know, they made a comment about your daughter's hair bow and dress and so she (laughs) does a little twirl in the hallway and just those sort of authentic conversations that happen at church and you know one thing that i have always loved about our church community is that you know we park our car open the doors and the kids just run in like Mm -hmm. they have grown up in this church they feel safe comfortable and they you know they can approach adults and know that it's a safe person they can talk to and I, you know, I think we're going to have to retrain them. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that will feel like the first time we can go back to church, but that's the kind of community that I miss, people that aren't necessarily in my like, tight bubble, but I value them and love them and appreciate them as part of my church family. Yeah.
1: And another element of my faith that has been reshaped and, and really maybe reemphasized has, uh, I've always been an advocate of personal responsibility, but not detached from social responsibility. Uh, I think those go hand in hand, and you can't have one without the other. And I think Jesus certainly advocates for that when he says, love your neighbor as you would love yourself. There is this individual component to it, but there's also this communal component to it or societal component to it. And so seeing what's happened over the last year, especially regarding social distancing and mask wearing and some of the kickback that we've seen across the country, regarding those two practices, I've been reminded that it is a Christian teaching to not only take personal responsibility for oneself, but also just as important, if not more important, because Jesus talks about serving others, and Paul does as well, putting others before yourself. The importance of by taking care of yourself, you're taking care of others, and by taking care of others, you're taking care of self. And so this inter this inter uh, I guess intertwine of um, of personal and social responsibility as a cen- central Christian teaching, and that that's really stuck out to me in in the last year, and I come. Out of this pandemic, hopefully we're on the way out of this pandemic uh, now, uh, more committed to that idea than ever before. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it it feels like it sort of goes against this like rugged individualism mm-hmm. that is America. And I think that's really what we've seen rear its really ugly head um, with that pushback to these kind of taking care of the community things. You know, we later in our, our conversation with Dr. Novak, she talks about how if people had just the first couple of weeks of March or, you know, mid March when this happened, just stayed at home yeah. for two weeks, like this thing would have been gone. It would have been gone. We never, it would have died out the virus can't live. Like, and I, when she talked about that, I just, I just got chills. I'm like, we, we missed it.
1: Yep. We did. We missed our opportunity to take care of ourselves and to take care of other people. So before we get,
0: look at our, now, now look at our numbers and right. people who have died because of that. Yeah,
1: Absolutely. You know, before we uh, jump to our interview with Dr. Novak, let me just ask you, looking back on this last year, has your faith been reshaped, reformed somehow?
0: Yeah, I I definitely think that it has. Um, It's been, you know, it's been a pandemic, which has felt very like you're standing on shaky ground, Mm -hmm. um, as someone who likes, we all like to have control, but you know, there's, there are a lot of plates spinning in our family already. And so I feel like the pandemic has made things really unsteady and it feels a bit to me, my faith and my anxiety have become more
1: intertwined,
0: (laughs) um, sort of like someone has thrown a rubber ball inside of a, a small room and it's just sort of ricocheting all around. But you know, my faith still continues to outpace my anxiety. Right. And for that, I'm thankful.
1: So, so I just heard you say the Holy Spirit speaks through your anxiety. Yes,
0: <laughs> that's exactly
1: <laughs> it. Autumn, 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 Autumn.
0: That's right. hey, 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 hey. It's gonna
1: be. It's, it's going to be okay. It's gonna be. It's gonna be okay.
0: It's a, it's a tight race too sometimes, <laughs> but for the most part, faith wins out. So uh, that's
1: good. Well, great. Uh, well, we had a delightful conversation earlier in the week with Dr. Amanda Novak from Little Rock, Arkansas. Dr. Novak is an immunologist at Baptist Health Medical Center there in Arkansas, and she was a delight and full of wisdom. So, stay tuned with our conversation with Dr. Novak.
0: Lot Cary is proud to bring you conversations with some of the best and brightest pastors coast to coast. Our new podcast, Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving delivers wisdom from the black church for the whole church. Find us wherever you get your podcast or listen online at lotcary.org. That's L O T T C A R E Y.org. We look forward to the pilgrimage with you.
1: Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. And on this episode, we've got a very special guest with us, all the way from Arkansas, Dr. Amanda Novak. She specializes in infectious disease at Baptist Health Medical Center in Little Rock, Arkansas. She provides infectious disease con- consults. She's married with three children and loves living in her state of Arkansas. They like to hike camp, ride bicycles as a family, and they're honored to be a part of the foster care community there in Little Rock and our members at Argenta United Methodist Church. Dr. Novak, welcome to Good Faith Weekly.
0: Well, thank you. It's great to be here.
1: Well, we We're are gl- so glad that
0: you're here. Um, so, practicing medicine in a global pandemic surely is really challenging. But before we dig into all of the science, um, how are you and your family coping? How old are your kiddos? So,
2: they are 17, 15, and just turned 11. Um, our 17 year old is actually a senior and uh, will be graduating this spring. And um, it, it's certainly been rough at times. It is, uh, you know, Henry, the 15 year old is in ninth grade and, um, that was a big transition anyway. And, and I think, um, most 15 year olds feel like, uh, like their case is special and that their, um, their struggles are the, the biggest worst struggles. And, um, and then our 11 year old is just very, very social. She just always wants to be going and doing and playing with her friends. And um, and so th- there's just been a lot of challenges. I will say we've gotten uh, creative in the ways that um, we do family time. Um, and and there's really been some very sweet, special moments in there, too. It's forced all of us to um, to huddle down a little bit more and to spend more time together where we were sort of running all over town Um you know, trying to get everyone to their various practices and that sort of thing. A lot of it now um, we do from home, we do on Zoom, and uh, we'll even all sit at the table and do our various uh, online assignments together. And um, so I do, I think that, um, I don't want to speak too soon, but it it feels like the worst is behind us.
1: Good.
2: They've really learned to cope, and they've really... um, you know they have a new optimism too about about going forward and so that's really helped all of us at home
1: that's yeah. great well i certainly feel for all parents out there who have had to weather this storm uh, during the pandemic i've got two college-age students, and uh, one of them graduated during the pandemic, Another other one is still in school. And I've been telling them all along, you know, just think about the great story you're going to have one of these days when you gather around your kids and grandkids. And, of course, they just roll their eyes at me, which I'm quite certain your high school kids roll their eyes at you as well. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> uh, well, I'm glad everybody's doing well, and I agree. I mean, especially the last couple of weeks they, with the announcement of, uh, the, the vaccines and, of course, what's going on in the country politically, there does seem to be this new optimism in the air. And so I'm glad to hear you echo that. Absolutely. Well, you are located in practice medicine in the great state of Arkansas. So let me just begin by asking you, how are COVID cases trending in Arkansas? And can you and your colleagues point to any factor that contributed to the recent rising cases over the last couple of months?
2: Yeah, so in Arkansas, um, you know, it's a very rural state in general. Um, you know, there's about seven counties that, that make up most of the population and most of the cases. And so um, early in the pandemic, I had probably, I was a little too optimistic that uh, the way that Arkansans are spread out in these uh, more rural communities that somehow we would uh, not pass this virus around. And that's clearly not the case. People still uh, get together. And there was um, some concerning trends starting back even in September uh, when when school went back to session we started to see a, a crawl a, a slow uptick in cases and then there was a little burst about 10 days after Halloween and then another little burst 10 days after Thanksgiving and then uh, I was really hoping that people would learn from Thanksgiving and uh, do Christmas differently but um, but no there was there was quite the surge uh, really sort of starting on Christmas Day was when um, we started to see daily increases in the number of hospitalized patients. And then about 10 days after Christmas uh, is when it really felt overwhelming as far as record-breaking new cases, record-breaking hospitalizations, record-breaking number of people on the ventilator. And um, so it it felt, uh, the acceleration of that felt very daunting and overwhelming, and it was not a very optimistic new year really um but then you know it, all of that christmas um consequence sort of started to calm de- back down and and for the last 10 days or so we have we've seen lower numbers i mean still not where we want to be but but we're not breaking records every day with new cases and so it There's a little bit of calming in the community. I don't know if some of that is from... It it seems too early for the vaccine to have really made a a big difference as far as, you know, herd immunity or anything like that. Um, But the combination of the holidays being over and and a little bit of some of that communal setting dying back down... We've seen a little bit of improvement in the numbers.
1: I'm going to steal one of Autumn's questions, and she can steal one of mine later on, because at the first of the year, you did call for a shelter-in-place order, Um, and and I thought that was a very responsible and and reasonable call to action. But just as, as you mentioned, you know, one of the things that has been concerning to me, and I've been watching the numbers the last couple of days, is that my two uh, kids who, as I said, uh, are in college, who are home for college, or home from uh, their school now living with us, they've been working at a testing site here in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And what we discovered with them working on a testing site is how, uh, how funding is tied to testing and that uh, since the first of the year, the uh, lab that they were working at had to shut down like eight labs acro- or uh, testing sites across the country. And now they're only testing at this one location in Norman, Oklahoma. And so I, s- I saw that. And then I saw all of a sudden this kind of trend after the holiday because everybody was expecting this big spike after uh, Christmas and New Year's. But then the numbers seem to be trending down a little bit uh, midway About two weeks after uh, New Year's, but I was thinking, well, are we doing as much testing now as we were, say, in December and November? Because my point is, deaths and ICU uh, cases seem to stay steady, if not increase a little bit.
2: Right, and in fact, in Arkansas, we have certainly continued increase in deaths, Mm -hmm. um, even even where other numbers have sort of flattened out. So I do think, you know, we talk about the percent positivity that, that's, that gauges how much of this is just over-testing or testing too many people. And we know in Arkansas the percent positivity has been over 10%, which is sort of this somewhat arbitrary cutoff, but it's been over 10% for several weeks. And so I do think... Um, Certainly, day-to-day testing can account for some of the day-to-day variations in the the number of new cases that we identify, and there did seem to be a rush on testing right after Christmas, even within a few days. People started to find out that people at those family events were positive. And, and so there was really a rush on testing. And even during that time when there was an increase in testing, there was still a very high positivity rate. And so we were still, I don't think we were over testing or, you know, we wasn't that we were, um, you know, testing a lot of asymptomatic people without disease. I, I think we were just uh, testing as fast as we could and we were just barely identifying uh, the cases that were prevalent. I do think that um, the percent positivity has trended down just a little bit and so we're not testing as much as we were and I think that is why some of these new cases are, are lower but there also seems to be in the percent positivity there really does seem to be a trend toward fewer active cases still sort of an insane number. I mean, it's really, mm-hmm. in Arkansas, yesterday we had about 2,400 new cases. Back in September, that would have broken the record. That w- that would have been all we were talking about. And now that we've had many days that broke 3,000 new cases or 4,000 new cases, you get down to 2,400 and we forget that that's you know, 2,400 lives. That usually represents about three to five times that many actual infections. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as not everyone gets tested when they're positive. And so there's still definitely a very concerning amount of disease in the, in the community. Um, but I, but I do think it is slightly less rampant than it was right around Christmas.
1: So do you still think, do you still think we need to have a shelter in place order?
2: I think my, my reasoning behind the shelter in place, um, was a couple fold. One was in Arkansas, we really were and, and continue to, to teeter on the edge of hospital capacity. Uh, you know, if you, if you look at the raw numbers that the health department reports, it looks like we still have some wiggle room on, on beds. But, but what we know um, in real life is that standards of care are being stretched i mean we're not anything like the crisis standards of care that we saw in in new york back in march mm-hmm. but but we really do um just on the the ratios of, of nurses to patients the fatigue of the staff um you know the volume of of patients that a physician is carrying or that a nurse is taking care of all of those things are, um, are really stretched to the point where, you know, people are not getting the best possible care as it is. And so part of my impetus for for pushing for a, a shelter in place was by the time you've gone over hospital capacity, it's two weeks before you can turn anything around. Sure. And so, um, so that was part of my motivation. Part of it is... Um, some of these deaths are unnecessary that uh, you know even if cases are falling you know these are human lives um, that that a real period of prudence could have could have saved and the other thing about shelter in place is that it's actually a pretty effective way to um, to truly get things under control. If everyone shelters at the same time, then the virus has nowhere to go. And so, you know, I tend to believe, you know, you could never logistically make this happen. But if back in March or April, the whole world had been able to go on quarantine at the same time, then this would be over by now. Mm -hmm. The virus doesn't live on surfaces for very long. It it doesn't tend to be transmitted by other animals. I mean, this is a person-to-person infection. And by stopping person-to-person contact, even for just a couple weeks, you can dramatically decrease the amount of virus being transmitted in the community. And it really doesn't have anywhere to hide or stay. So if you stop that transmission, then you stop the disease. So... You know, I don't know that um, – there's no easy answer when sure. it comes to shelter in place. Right. I think that now that we have vaccine, uh, there's a little bit more wiggle room. I think it's it's reasonable, certainly for people who have been vaccinated, to um, – to go out and do a little bit more we absolutely are still wearing masks we're still um socially distancing we're still spreading out but i don't worry
1: most of us are dr novak (laughs) i I say us i really i mean my family i guess is really what i mean
2: so we're still being careful um but there also is a little bit of added protection i you know i i worry less about those um those really unexplained positives you know around Christmas uh people became I'll back up we saw people test positive who who really did not have any obvious risk factors they had seen their daughter for a few hours um but you know, they were spread out. Th- these were not the people that we saw back in the summer that were going to weddings with 100 people, or, you know, these were people who were generally careful with very small lapses in masking and social distancing that were then testing positive. And I think the vaccine protects against that sort of thing. Yeah. So I think that this could end faster.
1: Good. That's it's good to all hear. We as a
2: community work together <laughs> and, and committed to a couple of weeks of sheltering in place. Yeah. We're so uh, good
0: at that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah I mean, boy, I, I don't know We're about
1: Arkansans, sure. but my fellow Okies are just fabulous at it. <laughs> We're all on the
0: same page. We're all working for a common cause, right?
1: Preach. That's- preach. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> so um, now that we have two types of vaccines on the market, we have another one on the way, sort of waiting in the wings what challenges are you encountering when it comes to distributing the vaccine oh my goodness right that's a (laughs) huge question and then after that is uh what do you think we can do better to get vaccines in the arms of citizens yeah so uh,
2: the obvious problem barrier is that there's just not enough vaccine to go around and so um that certainly in Arkansas, but I think everyone's feeling that all over the country, is that we have more people willing to get vaccine than we actually have vaccine. I think uh, another place that we've perhaps, um, oh, been led astray a little bit. I'm very... uh, Supportive, And I, I really advocate for underserved communities in, in Arkansas that often means poor rural communities, mm-hmm. farmland, the Delta, um, these really impoverished areas of the state. If this were insulin or cancer treatment or blood pressure medicine, I would absolutely advocate for equally distributing it across the state. With vaccine, that actually doesn't make any sense. You really want to focus vaccine where you have the highest density of people. The best thing you can do to protect small-town Arkansas is to eradicate COVID in the cities of Arkansas. Mm -hmm. And so... um, you know, I've seen what what is really a very noble effort, but I think a um, misguided effort to distribute vaccine equally across all parts of our state. Um, and so I, I wish we could do that with teachers and uh, funding. And I mean, there's so many things I would love to see mm-hmm. that approach with, but vaccine's really not the way to go.
0: Yeah.
2: So... Um, so that's been one of the challenges, I think, is is operationalizing this process. And, uh, you know, here at, at Baptist, I'm really proud of how we've been able to do that. We, we very quickly put together a clinic and a process for registering and a process for you know, sending that information to the health department. So we were reporting in real time what vaccines we were giving. And um, we got to where, you know, as a system, we could vaccinate about 4,000 people a day. Well, the whole state only gets about 38,000 a week. Um, And so it doesn't. It doesn't help that we can do four thousand a day <laughs> yeah. when we only get about two hundred and fifty a day, and um, and so much of this has been handled at the point of execution. I mean, we find out on Friday afternoon how much vaccine we'll be getting Monday morning, and it's really hard to make a schedule when that's the case. It's really hard to find staffing when that's the case. Um, I I would have liked to have seen just a more um, organized and coherent approach to vaccine in Arkansas. I think, um, you know, again, uh, this principle of um, empowering small communities, I, I believe in that all the time. But um, but on this point, it, it really was um, – I think could have been a more efficient use of the few vaccine doses that we had to roll them out in a very systematic, very organized, very top-down approach, um, so, we, so we're really making the best use of it. Sure. Yeah. feels like a very inefficient process the way we've implemented it.
0: So we're sort of having the opposite problem, like we're on one end of the spectrum right now, right? We have so many people who want the vaccine and not enough to cover. But eventually, we're going to get to the other end of the spectrum. And something that I'm really concerned about is what happens when most of us have done what we need to do. We've gotten our vaccine, but we have these holdouts. Are they going to ruin it for the rest of us? Right. I I think um,
2: that concerns me too, for sure. And, And it is a balancing act. I mean, I've been asked to make videos encouraging people to get vaccine and I'm happy to do that. I mean, I have done that, but at the same time, I kind of don't want to oversell it right now because the reality is most people cannot have it right now. Oh. And so, and you don't want to strike fear into people or panic, like they have to get this vaccine as soon as possible um, when when there's clearly not enough to go around. I do think, you know, this will really be one of the first times in, in my life when uh, we've been able to see the experiment play out with vaccines you know measles and mumps and polio and all of these things that we vaccinate for you know the reality is i've never seen a measles case as an infectious disease doctor i say that that's not true one time in fellowship i was aware of a measles case that had traveled from india but um, I've never seen polio. Uh, we had a mumps outbreak in Arkansas, but, you know, that's still very rare to see. Even chickenpox now, we um, we hardly ever diagnose because of vaccines. This is, um, you know, the, the first time in 30 or 40 years that uh, people are aware of the severity of an infection, that it's killing people, and now we have a solution to prevent that. And so my hope is that that will, that that will play itself out. You know, most people that are truly against vaccinations, it's because, because none of us are really good at gauging risk and benefit. And, um, and by some perceptions, the risk of the vaccine is higher than the risk of the disease. And the truth is for an individual, that is true. Your child's risk of having a reaction to measles is probably to the measles vaccine is probably a little bit higher than their risk of getting measles. The reason we still vaccinate for measles is because at a population level, the risk of the vaccine is minimal, tiny compared to the risk of letting measles run rampant in our Mm -hmm. community again. And so... What we have already seen in healthcare workers in Arkansas is there were the people that were there waiting in line the first day, and the people that um, waited until about week four or week five to sign up. And we we sort of told them this is a limited resource. We don't know that we'll have it available for you, but they to those people, they wanted to see what it did to their friends first. They wanted to see if anyone died or if anyone. <laughs> had a bad reaction or grew an extra arm. And and, um, and around week four, we had another batch of, of people come in to, to take the vaccine. So our, our numbers varied a lot across different populations. But among nurses, for instance, we saw about 45% of the nurses wanted the vaccine just as soon as they could get it. And then around week four, another 15%. Um, signed up and we're, we're ready to take it at that time. And so I think that will continue to play out in the coming months yeah. that more and more people will have a sister that got the vaccine and did fine with it. I think more and more people will know um, that the at that point, I mean, by April or May, the people getting COVID will be the people who haven't been vaccinated. And, and so people will have this science experiment played out in front of them in, the, in their families even. And I'm hopeful that um, with that sort of evidence, that's not so hypothetical, but actually playing out in people's lives, that there will be um, an increase in, in uptake and we know that it's not a; per- these are not perfect vaccines. They don't work 100%. A big part of making them work is is to use them across the board. So, um, to protect the people who who can't mount a response, who cannot become immune to it, the way you protect those people is, you know, making all the people around them immune. And um, and so it is important that we. You know, that we all do our part and that there is this herd immunity, that there's um, efforts to vaccinate the majority of people. But I also I think that, you know, there's benefit to the individual that gets the vaccine. And I think more and more people will see that and will um, will choose to get that protection for themselves when they're seeing in real life
1: how it plays out for other people. I certainly hope you're right. I mean, from our end, we get we get people from both spectrums, uh, both sides of the spectrum, who are against vaccination. You got people who are anti vaxxers who you know just don't like vaccinations in general, and then you've got the crazies out there that think there's a microchip put in going to be put into you by Bill Gates. But what you said, I think, is fascinating because you mentioned other. Uh, diseases that have been, you know, almost eradicated. And we had, we interviewed John Barry uh, a few months ago, and, uh, and John wrote this incredible book called The Great Influenza about the 1918 pandemic. And we asked him a similar question, and he said, well, I'll tell you, So the symptoms aren't uh, as bad as they were back in 1918. You had people walking around that were blue in the face and you had blood coming out of their eyes and their ears. You know, people here, you know, they, they get a cough, they, they, get, they have flu-like symptoms. It's not until they get in the ICU and the reality is we live in such a a healthy society meaning modern medicine is a, a, a miracle that has provided us a, a healthy society people don't see the smallpox they don't see the mumps they don't, they don't it's not before their eyes so they don't they don't see it and therefore they feel like they're immune to it already and and come up with these crazy theories but i hope you're right i hope that uh, everybody out there gets the jab as my two uh, college age sons say uh get it and get it uh, quickly and hopefully the distribution will go well. Hey, is there any reason we should be worried about these variants uh, coming out of the UK and especially the one out of South Africa?
2: So hmm, I I will say that I think there is some evidence that our vaccines and our natural immunity um, is not all for naught that, that um, there is some cross-immunity, uh, but yes, I, I am concerned about these variants. Even the ones that um, that seem to be, uh, we would say, they're no more virulent. So the, the actual, if you catch this variant, your disease will be, you'll get just as sick as if you had our old homegrown variety. Um, but the transmissibility, how contagious they are, that's really... Um, how they differ and we haven't been great at controlling a pandemic with a marginally contagious version of this virus you take something that's 50 or 70 percent more transmissible and it's pretty daunting to think how we're going to manage to not spread that all around Um, so I do think they could be. They, they could certainly delay the end of the pandemic. I ultimately, I don't think that um, they're going to go on and on and on. Yeah. But it, it, they could put us several months behind schedule for sure. And uh, and for me in my job, we were just starting to figure out how to answer some of these questions about. How long do we isolate? How long do we quarantine? Now was that risky if you had this kind of mask or that kind of mask? Um, and I had just sort of built enough experience that if someone called and said they'd had lunch with someone who tested positive four days later, I sort of felt good about giving them advice. And now you throw these new variants in there. And the truth is I, I don't know how they behave. I know um what we've learned so far is that they seem to be more contagious. They seem to bind to the respiratory tract more fiercely, and so it takes less of it to infect somebody. Um, there is some data that some of the antibodies that we build uh, would not be effective against uh, against these variants, and um, and then there's kind of the questions of, you know, is our testing even adequate? So. Uh, you know, for some of these variants on some of the platforms we use to test, we might be getting a negative when they're really positive with one of these variants. And so it's not that it's keeping me up at night, but it it definitely is uh, all the more reason that we have to work together in this as quickly as possible. So the more time we allow this to fester in our society, the the more opportunity there is for those variants to arise. And sure. so um yeah, that kind of game on is right. how I, <laughs> I heard about <laughs> right.
1: Well, Dr. Novak, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. We've got two really quick questions to conclude our interview with that Autumn is going to ask. But, uh, you know, I just, I just want to thank you so much for all the work that you and your colleagues are doing there in Arkansas and across the country and across the globe, uh, trying to take care of all of us and keep us safe. And we just can't thank you enough.
0: Well,
2: thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: So we are approaching a year, um, or it has been a year, since the first cases of COVID-19 were reported here in the U.S. Um, as a Christian, can you tell us how the pandemic has affected your faith?
2: Yeah, so the pandemic has, um, I mean, it's been quite the learning experience, you know, and, and that's really how, you um, how I've seen um, most of it is that um, I'm being shaped, that I'm being taught, that I, I think probably an a absurd amount about the idea of a crucible, that, um, you know, that God is using this time to melt away the impurities, to get rid of the parts of my life that I don't need, um, to, to be of service or to understand God's will in my life. Um, I also, it has been um, a really amazing time of gratitude. I've really, um, you know, reflected a lot on just what God is doing in our lives during this time, and and really, um, it's been a time that I've had to cling desperately at times, Um, and you know, I think uh, as a physician, it's it's easy enough to get lulled into a sense that I'm somehow um, oh in charge, or that I that I hold some sort of power, or um, that I can live by self-propulsion, and and this sort of defeat really i mean this sort of um overwhelming evidence that i cannot run my own life that i cannot that i'm not in charge uh, has really fostered a, a bit of um like a sweet desperation <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> to know god and to um and to just seek out his comfort really i mean that's the other thing is that um I've learned to more than ever before, seek God as, as the sole source of my comfort of my strength of, um, of all that I need. Mm-hmm. And so when, when it's uh, this obvious <laughs> that I cannot do life by myself, it's, it's a great opportunity to, to uh, reconnect and, I love and to realize great. how important God was all along. And just how, um, how now I, I can see that there's really no alternative for me. <laughs> That's
1: fantastic. Absolutely, Yeah.
0: So our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of everything that we've gone through this year and we've talked about today, what is your more to tell?
2: So my more to tell is um, that this is really a special, special time and that, Um, it it occurs to me sometimes that I'll actually be nostalgic for this phase of my life at some point, that, um, that the sweetness, the closeness, the intimacy that comes from this sort of um, stress, this communal stress that, um, that I'm connected to everyone else on earth going through this right now. And that, um, and that this really is as difficult as it is. It is also just a precious time of growth and of paring down and of, um, you know, seeing reality in a different way. And so, um, it's not lost on me that um, that there there is goodness in this time, and that. Um, and that I might even miss it at some point, a little bit, but not that
1: much.
2: (laughs) I'll be glad when it's over,
1: too. (laughs) Very well put. That was was beautiful. Well, Dr. Amanda Novak, again, thank you so much for spending time with us uh, this week. We appreciate uh, everything that you're doing and uh, keep up the great work and we want to remind all of our listeners as soon as that vaccine is available for them to make their appointment and get vaccinated as quickly as possible because not only is your life uh, special to us uh, everybody around you as well so uh, dr novak thank you for being with us
2: Yeah, sure. Thank you so
1: much. Well, listeners, thank you so much for joining us at Good Faith Weekly. We appreciate uh, each and every one of you. And uh, join us next week as we'll have another episode. Until then, just remember, keep living good faith.